0: Well, welcome, it is great to see you and great to have those who are with us at our West Campus, down in Traditions, and for many who are watching right now online as well. We're just glad you're part of what God is doing and thankful for you. Many of you may know I am from Chicago and I grew up on the city's uh, north side, northwest side, which has uh, interesting implication for a person's life doing that. Because every Chicagoan from the north side of the city automatically becomes a cub fan. Okay, thank you. I don't always get such an overwhelming response, but that's great. Uh, I don't know if it's something that's genetic, I don't know if it's a legal requirement that comes with the territory, or it's in the water, I'm not sure what it is, but it's a permanent, serious commitment. This is big time. So with that, I need to make this announcement that as I speak, the Cubs are in first place, all right? Thank you, that's great. I have to say that because this is a rare moment in time. The Cubs are rarely in first place at this time in the season. We have suffered through terrible, terrible seasons. In years when it was almost mathematically impossible to lose, we lost. The last time the Cubs have been in a World Series was the year 1908. I was not there. (laughs) The last time we were in a series was 1945. I missed that one as well, which is okay. But it's been a miserable career in baseball. Well, phrases that Cub fans repeat often from early childhood is this phrase, wait till next year. Now here in Colorado, I realize we teach our children words like mommy, daddy, yes, no. Cub fan children are taught, wait till next year, the first words that come out of our mouths as Chicago people. And we've repeated that litany of that phrase year after year, decade after decade, and now century after century. So I'm incredibly optimistic as a person I realize that my optimism in the Cubs is totally unfounded and unreasonable, but let me just say it, the Cubs are in first place. (laughs) All right. There are some substantial reasons, however, to be optimistic about life. And I'm encouraged as we wanna talk about that today a bit. It's like a great line that C.S. Lewis wrote when he was uh, penning his wonderful series of books, The Chronicles of Narnia, where he portrays the Christ figure who delivers the world as a lion named Aslan. And as things were so dark and dismal and and just discouraging, and people suffered in this time, the rumor began to spread and the word began to be passed along, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. And it changed everything hope began to be restored and people's lives were changed. As a church, we are months into something we call for the city and beyond. Uh, we refer to it as a time when we're taking bold steps of faith to reorient ourselves and our church toward our community and bringing the hope of the gospel toward people and the Christ's love toward people here. Work has been going on this uh, this summer and I just want to take a moment to update you on some things that I think are really very encouraging. Um, starting tomorrow, we will have, going running through mid-November, 15 teams in various global locations. And this, the, the level of what they're doing in terms of, a lot of these teams are international in scope, so we're working alongside uh, Africans and Latin Americans. And uh, this is tremendous work that's taking place to advance God's kingdom agenda. Recently we had a team just come back from Peru, and again, many people came to know know Jesus and and put their faith and trust in Him. So thank you for your work and that, your prayers. This summer has been an interesting summer. Many people have participated in what we call engaged Nights, as we have talked about the various initiatives that, that comprise for the city and beyond well-attended nights moving forward in some areas. One area that I just said need to make a footnote on because it is so interesting to me is the area of refugee work. Do you know that in all of our country, all across the United States, there are only seven Karini Burmese Refugees church Churches in existence? Christ Community International is one of those seven churches. And we're just thankful for that. In fact, this church This church has uh, reached 20% of our entire Karini population in this area and are part of that church, which I think is great glory to God, and we're just thankful for that. We've had some spiritual challenges, and uh, many have been praying about this. We have a leader in the country of Syria right now that has been... Uh, really under attack from demonic forces and people involved in occultic things have come to his home and planted magical stuff in his house. And he has been totally immobilized and unable to walk and and hardly function. And so we were asked to pray and many of you were part of that team to pray for a man by the name of Sam. And and, uh, it was funny to get in typical Syrian fashion from our leaders. Uh, Good news, Sam is half better I don't know what that means, but keep praying. And it was noticed by the family, and, and it was one of these things where people were mocking Christ, because if your Jesus is real, well, then why doesn't he make you better? So he's half better. Uh, also, Danny, our national leader, was, had another attempt on his life just two days ago, and uh, God just um, revealed to him things that uh, allowed him to escape a very difficult situation. So I'm not sure what to do about the Cubs, but I love where God is going and what he's doing and I'm optimistic. You know, we're all in different seasons of life, and there are, are seasons that are typically not much in life or kind of routine, and, and you know, that's okay. We don't live on spiritual adrenaline all the time. There are just times that just kind of flow, and probably sometimes we've had these conversations, how's your summer, and it's okay, and, and it's okay to be okay, you know? Those are, those are good things. But I hope we also know that there are moments there are moments when God steps in, and as we've talked about in this wonderful series this, this summer, tattered covers, where our story and God's story intersects. They just come together, and God is on the move. These God moments react. I love the story, historically as well, of the Wright brothers and their place in aviation history. Fascinating people. They were optimistic off the charts, let's face it. Years of tests, years of wrecked aircraft, years of recalculations that took place in their studies, and endless failures as they tried to figure out how manned flight was about to take place. Others who pursued this dream died trying. It was dangerous business. But two brothers, Orville and Wilbur Wright, persisted. And they finally engaged in a moment that changed them and actually changed transportation history. As you know, the challenge they faced was not getting a plane off the ground. Other people had done that, but rather controlling flight after you got off the ground. Like It's, it's really all important to be, get the landing right, and people were struggling with that. Little did he know that in a moment in time, in December of 1903, this wonderful event took place. Let's take a look at it. You say, I hardly think that's a wild moment. <laughs> okay. Their whole flight lasted 12 seconds. They reached speeds of 26 miles an hour. Can you imagine such a thing? And in fact, the length of that flight that you saw, that first flight, was shorter than the distance between the the nose and the tail of our typical airliners today. Really not much of a wow factor in that. Yet in that moment, and because of that moment, because of those 12 seconds, it inspired innovation, it ignited a movement that really has transformed the way we lived. Life is dotted with significant moments. And part of our challenge as Christ followers is to recognize those moments when they come because they will come. They will come. Now to help us, I want us to take a look at one such dramatic God moment in history. It occurred in the life of a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And uh, his life occurs in the context of this uh, very depressing spiritual, cultural, national decline. But in that moment, God appeared to him and spoke. And I want us to see this. So if you have your Bibles, iPads, phones, whatever, um, actual books, Uh, with the Bible, Isaiah chapter 6. And we want to read this wonderful chapter. I think you'll enjoy it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant. Until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remain in the land, it will be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Great passage. I think we need some introduction. Now what Isaiah experienced was really uh, off the grid. I mean, this is strange. Suddenly, he sees angelic creatures that are really hard for him to describe. They're in heaven. He's experiencing powerful tremors that are shaking the very ground on which he is standing. There's mysterious sounds taking place, and, and in fact, there's smoke or haze that's filling the temple. And he sees a vision of God himself sitting on heaven's throne, very high and very exalted. If that were not enough, God speaks and presents an intriguing question directly to a bewildered and humbled Isaiah. Now we love this this spectacular vision, but it does present some challenges for our embracing it, for our having it become our story. Now, to begin with, Isaiah's vision is so far above the experience that most of us have had. That is, we typically don't see God in such powerful, dramatic, majestic kind of visions as he is seeing. And the challenge here is to understand that though the level of grandeur or the level of majesty may be different for us, God does speak to his people. Sometimes dramatically, but often very quietly, very much in still voices as he wants direct to direct people. How God chooses to speak to us, that's his business. It may be that someone is praying for you and they bring a word to you and you resonate with that. You may sense God's prompting as you're here worshiping and as you're before the Lord in, in church. Or as you read God's word or hear a message and something sticks, you just, you just know it. God is trying to say something to you. Sometimes it comes in an opportunity that you're involved and you're just gripped with that moment in time. and You know God is there. And in those God moments, seeds of change are planted that can impact us and can impact others. Now God's plans for each of his people are important and they are wonderfully fulfilling. You matter, you matter. Whether you are a person who is contemplating retirement, whether you are launching into adult life, whether you're in your career or you're raising many kids or you're at school, whatever it might be, we often struggle with insignificance. We struggle with the fact that how our lives could somehow be directed and connected to something that God, the God of this universe is orchestrating. But you matter and you are far from ordinary. Now, the second challenge before we get into this passage is to equate God and his call to vocational ministry. In other words, we hear these words, who will go for us, and immediately we think what he's saying is, who's going to be a missionary or a pastor or a vocational Christian worker? And what happens when we do that, it strips the relevance of this passage for 99% of us who if you're on your iPad right now are tempted to hit that delete button. This is a great passage for missionaries or a pastor, but it's not for me. But can I ask you to pause from doing that? Because I think we've missed what this passage is about if we do that. What if we saw it a different way of God desiring to mobilize his church and activate his people in a great partnership with what he wants to do in this world? This is far more than some volunteer speech that God is giving, some recruitment thing that he's trying to accomplish. It represents a God moment, a moment in time, when we encounter God for who he is and we see ourselves for who we are, and we understand a bit of his plan as those two intersect. Now, the entire passage is amazing. It is just incredible. But I wanna focus on just two sentences in this, this chapter. Isaiah, at this point in his life, is living in the routines of life's responsibility. He's in those okay moments of life. As you may know, he is married, he has two boys, and he's spending time with his family. And out of the blue comes this God moment where this vision appears from heaven with God's intriguing questions to him. And by the way, this is kind of how God operates. Here's Moses in the desert, tending sheep and suddenly a burning bush that talks. Interesting. Here's David, the shepherd boy, far from the action of what's happening in Israel. He's prompted to go to the front and things happen in dramatic ways. Here's Abraham, an Iraqi businessman who's very successful in what he does and very wealthy. And God taps him in the shoulder and said, hmm, go. So our focus is this. God's speaking and he asks these two questions that are very related. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? By the way, an interesting connection to the Trinity here that's uh, at least implied in the passage. Now, as I study this passage, uh, I, I just observe three things that are very basic, but very important, which led me to some personal questions that I must throw out your way. Observation one is this, obviously there's a problem. There is a problem that God senses. Now, the context here of this passage really helps us understand the problem. Because it begins with this word uh, that this was all happening in the year that King Uzziah died. Uh, King Uzziah um, was not one of the best leaders Israel ever knew. In fact, he was awful. And God has witnessed, as the people have witnessed, this terrible tragedy of morally weak leadership. 52 years of weak leadership that the king had. 52 years of disastrous policies and actions by this government that has resulted in an in-your-face godlessness and calloused hearts and rebellion by the people. What's especially sad, I believe, is that God wanted to give these people life. He wanted to bring them to Himself. In the the words of this passage, He wanted to bring healing to the people and the the country. He had good plans for them. So implicit in this question of going and sending is a need. There's a need, obviously, for someone to go and do something. In fact, later it tells us about this, that the people are, have become so callous, so hard. They just didn't care about God and His ways and had left all those things. Jesus, when He kind of commented on life without God, said people are like sheep without a shepherd. They're just wandering around. They don't know life. They're missing struggling with direction, struggling with life, lost. Apostle Paul just referred to people as spiritually dead, that is unresponsive to the life that God has. But what's significant here, and I think the real basis for our optimism as Christ followers is that we see God's heart. He looks at this hurting country and this hurting world and he finds Isaiah and asks him to help. He feels that the people of the land were worth going after. They were worth going after. So this brings us to the first question. That is, what do I see? Or if I can turn this to you, what do you see? What are we aware of when we look at our community and the people that live around us, our neighborhoods, whatever it might be? You know, I love the the incredible story of Elisha, the prophet, another prophet and his servant who one day were surrounded by uh, uh, the, the enemy's uh, army. Uh, they were extremely irritated with uh, Elisha because he had this prophetic gift and he could tell what the king was going to do in invading the land. He always warned the, Israeli king and they always kind of blocked him and and finally the king understood I have to get rid of Elisha or I'm never going to win this war and so he moves his entire army they circle the city where Elisha and his pro- and his servant is are located servant gets up and he sees we're doomed the army has surrounded us and Elisha the prophet said to him listen don't worry don't worry don't you love that phrase when you're surrounded okay And then he prays this wonderful prayer that God would open the eyes of his servant. And God answered the prayer. And the servant of Elijah looked around him and he saw, yes, the army of uh, the enemy, but also surrounding them the armies of God, which he describes as chariots of fire. An amazing picture of God's grace is that God blinds the enemy army. They're all blind, they can't function. Elisha and the servants slip out of town. And then in grace, the army's eyes were restored. They make peace. They return home. Hope is restored to the land. A wonderful story. You know, as I think about what we're involved in with, as a church for the city and beyond that you've been hearing about, it is so good. But it begins in how we see people. It has to begin there. How do we see people? Are they a bother to us? Are they a threat to our comfort or with God's vision, people he loves that he's going after? You know, all around us, there are people. Do you see the emotionally broken? Do you see the addicted? Do you see those in poverty? Do you see those trapped in gangs? Do you see the spiritually lost? Do you see those in the marketplace and those who are potential leaders? those who are in the grips of of global pain. What do you see? Part of my challenge is to go beyond the consensus or the political uh, consensus of the day to align my vision with what God sees. And I pray, Lord, open my eyes that I might see what's really going on here. To see the lostness, to see the hopelessness, to see people without a savior, Friends, I, as you know, am excited about For the City and Beyond, but not just because of what we do, or because it might make us great, which it doesn't, or even that we always do it right, but rather because it represents God's heart and what he desires to do in this city, in this community. And that's a good thing. So let me pass on this image for you that can never end up as our church logo, okay? Unawareness can't be us. We've got to see. We've got to see what is in people around us. So, observation two is this that God cares. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? The questions, again, imply God is going to do something that is, love people and love takes action. It's as if the Lord is saying, listen, something must be done about what I see in this nation. He is still in the, on the throne. God still rules. He still sees what is going on. Who will go for us? You know, this observation leads very quickly to a second question that we must answer. And that is, do I share God's discontent? Pastor Bill Hybels, Chicago guy, uh, coined this expression, which I love, holy discontent, holy discontent. And I think it's so relevant because all change really begins with some level of discontent in our life. He speaks about a life attitude and, and way of thinking where we see something that troubles us, And finally, we cross that line and we say, that's it, I can't take it anymore. I'm gonna do something about this need. I'm gonna do something about this problem I see. I'm gonna do something about this pain that I experience. So we have to think about this. Are we not okay with pain and justice around us? Friends, are we not okay that little girls are sold into brothels or into polygamous marriages at early ages? Is it not okay with us that a gang member or those trapped in poverty or the addicted remain in that pain? Do we say we're not good with the fact that lost people who need Jesus are not connected to believers, are not connected to the gospel? I saw a poster this summer in Africa. It just troubled me. It was a poster of a a lost person, lost people group, and it was an African man, tribal person. And it had under the caption, two billion people, which is what the situation, two billion people who are not engaged with the gospel or a Christian of any shape form. But the caption was the troubling part, and no one's even looking for us and no one's even looking for us. And I thought this can never be true of those who follow Christ. Do we not cry out, not acceptable, not okay? That in the face of sickness, people will be prayed for. Unloved children will be cared for. You see, all great change begins with a level of discontent In the country of Uganda, I was invited to go to the mountainous northern part of the country. And I still remember walking in this area and uh, knew only one person, our our national leader there. And uh, beautiful, beautiful country, mountains, trees, coffee plants, bananas, and all the rest of it, and just terrible poverty. And I said, where are the churches? Well, there are no churches here. And uh, what about medical care? There's no health care here. We found that there were few believers in Jesus there, but our partners had this vision and we agreed. And with our national director there, we just kind of, this can't be. Not when it's so easy to fix and to work on. And so they began a clinic provided some some clinical help, but also a lot of preventative care to help people and teach people how to live. And then a church sprung up and it became known in the whole region what was happening. In fact, Muslims would come and they were amazed because Christians, they couldn't believe Christians would love and treat them for their health needs. I think about even how we pray, someone has said, that prayer is rebellion against the status quo. (laughs) The strange way of looking at prayer. But doesn't it really express our discontent with what is? That we pray about what we're really concerned about? So, let me present to you another failed church logo. Can't be us, okay? Can't be us of just shrugging our shoulders. God cares. Isaiah 6 8. Observation number three, God is ready to act. You know, God can work in any way He wants to work, and He can do things independently apart from people. And he, but you know, He delights to work in partnership with us. God just loves to do that. And in this passage, in this God moment, something is happening in Isaiah. It's a beautiful picture. He sees God's glory, he's hearing angels call out, he's hearing all this majestic language and sounds and sights, and he's seeing God on the throne and all of that. And he responds in ways that I think we can identify with. I am ruined. I'm broken. In fact, he becomes quite dramatic. Woe to me. And while the language is dramatic, I think we get it. Next to God and his glory, he looks at himself and he says, I am so ruined. My people are ruined. My church is ruined. Next to God and his glory, we're nothing. And the result is Isaiah feels thoroughly unworthy. And yet these verses paint a picture of of the gospel. I love it. Note that God does not say to him, oh, you're not all that bad, Isaiah. Uh, The sin thing is not as big a deal as you're making it out to be. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, listen, you're not as bad as Uzziah. You're okay. He doesn't say that stuff. No, Isaiah is broken, but God does an amazing thing. And in this beautiful picture of taking a coal from the altar of God, that is God's doing, he's bringing this to Isaiah. He touches his lips and he says, Isaiah, your guilt is gone. Your sin, atoned for, taken away. And as Isaiah has come in his brokenness, God has come to him and brought him life. It's what God does through the death and resurrection of Christ. Curiously, instead of disqualifying him from life with God, our sense of unworthiness actually positions ourselves for life with him and a life of serving him. So this leads to a third question. Am I willing to join God? Am I in? Now I have to make a bit of confession as I'm teaching through this passage, because early experiences affect thinking and keeps us from seeing what God has for us. I heard this passage taught in the church I grew up in as a young boy, and I didn't get it. I just simply could. it was a nice story. I mean, the angel part still a little bit strange for me, but it, but it was a good story but I just couldn't get it. And what I was hearing that day was that this is for people who are foreign missionaries or people want to leave their country and go to another place. And obviously that's a great thing. But as I began to study through this text, I realized that what's going on here is not necessarily an international call. Isaiah was sent to his people. Isaiah was sent across the street and across the city. We might put it this way, Isaiah was commissioned with his own for the city and beyond campaign. The point was not to leave your home and your job and your country and your family, but to join with God and what he is doing, wherever you are. It may be overseas for some people. For Isaiah, it was staying at home staying where he was. Then I had another misconception, and this one took a little while to get through to me. This call was not presented to a huge crowd. I don't know what happened if I was sleeping during that message years ago or whatever, but I pictured this big amphitheater with thousands and thousands of people. I was sitting in row 73, seat H, you know, buried in the crowd. And God is throwing out these questions, whom shall I send? Who's going to go for us? And the image I had was to kind of look around and was certainly with this many people, somebody's gonna raise their hand, God will have the volunteers he needs, I can get on with my life and it's no big deal. But look again at this passage and I think you'll see the power of what's going on here. Friends, Isaiah is the only one in the room God asked the question, Isaiah is the only one in the room. He's speaking to an audience of one. And I began to think, what if we saw this passage as God speaking not to great throngs or not speaking to the people sitting in the row behind you or in front of you or whatever it might be, but it's just you and him, God and you. Now see if this helps another image that we cannot use in our letterhead. It's not, send him, she's the right person. It's us. Now there's another thing. This one took a lifetime for me. The incredible truth of this passage is this, that God thinks you are worth having on the team. You made the cut. He's asking the question to Isaiah and he asked the question to us. You are the one he values to such a great degree that he is willing to commission you to go in his name. You are someone so important to God that he desires that you go for him. You are worth inviting. Even though, like Isaiah, we feel so unworthy. Now Isaiah is living in a moment of time. How long it lasted, we don't know, maybe longer than the 12 seconds of the Wright brothers, but really not very long. And yet, this brief moment in time transformed him to a life of serving Christ and serving his people that stretched over a lifetime that would mean powerful things. In the moment, Isaiah responds with his famous words Here am I, send me. Could it be that God wants you to see him today just as he is? Exalted, full of glory, holy. Could it be that God wants you to see in this moment of time who you are? Yes, broken. But someone he loves, someone he has come to, to forgive and to atone. Could it be that in this moment, God wants you to see this community and what he wants to do here in this place? Could this be a moment that brings transformation to you and transformation to the people around you? Let's pray. Lord, there's so much to think about in this passage. As you, um, in your greatness, call out to this simple man, Isaiah. Lord, thank you as we want to see our lives here uh, as part of this story. That you affirm us. Lord, that you invite us to be a part of what you're doing that our lives matter. Lord, I pray that you would, even at this moment, deliver us from any fears as we think about what God might be calling us to do. That even in this significant God moment, we could say to you, here I am, send me. Thanks for the gospel. Lord, thank you that you delight in taking broken people and touching their lips, touching their lives and making them whole. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in the world today and in our community today. Lord, thank you for moments and time that change everything. Lord, I pray that in these next moments as we worship you, that we might see you, that you would meet with us, that we might be aware of your speaking. We might embrace you, embrace your invitation to us. So Lord, we pray that you would do your work in us now for your glory, for your honor, Because of the need. Because of your compassion. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.